You've done a first-rate job on the bear stuff, Uncle Parker told Jack as they sauntered down the garden. Swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, the lot of them, and given Grandma a new lease on life. She had confided in him her belief that sometime in the near future there was to be a second coming of Thomas. She had implored him to approach the house with caution in the future. Drive at ten miles an hour, she had pleaded. Drive at five. Give him a chance this time. I must say, I'm not surprised they think I'm barmy, Jack told Uncle Parker. It sounds barmy, the whole lot of it, even to me. All will be revealed on the 11th. Uncle Parker said. They don't really look up to me, you know, even now, Jack continued. They don't look at me with awe and hang on my every word like you said they would. They take more notice of me, all right, but they definitely aren't treating me like a prophet. They will, he promised, after Wednesday. What happened yesterday? Jack asked him, remembering. Was it Daisy? Uncle Parker nodded. Routed out some matches I'd overlooked and got a blaze going in the corner of the kitchen with cereal packets. Full ones. Snap, crackle, and pop all over the place. <laughs> what are you going to do? I took her to see a friend of mine who's dabbled a bit in psychology, Uncle Parker said. We're going to try saturation. Hmm? What's that? It's letting her make fires the whole time, even making her make fires, till she's sick of the sight of them. Aren't you going to run out of things to set fire to? asked Jack. Good thought. Got any old newspapers in the garage? Jack helped him to fetch some and stack them in the back of his car. He could not help having his doubts about the effectiveness of this experiment. Uncle Parker had some very odd friends, and their advice was not often sound. He had the kind of friends who would set off all of a sudden to travel to Kathmandu or Turkey, and then turn up months later to stay with him, bringing with them numerous half-baked theories they had picked up during their travels. Once one of them had brought Aunt Celia some worry beads, and they had disturbed her and got on her nerves so much that in the end she had deliberately snapped them, wailing, I can't bear it, I can't, and sent worry beads flying all over everywhere. Jack had been there at the time and knew for a fact that the only thing that had been worrying her was the worry beads. She had calmed down again the minute the worry beads had been swept up and thrown in the dustbin. Now don't forget, Uncle Parker told Jack before he drove off. Keep all three prongs on the boil from now on, and stick to the dowsing. We're going into countdown now. Five days to zero hour. Zero hour, repeated Jack. Hear that, zero? Zero wagged his tail in the half-hearted way he had. It's pretty good having an hour named after you, Jack told him, as he watched Uncle Parker drive off in a flurry of gravel. He was obviously not yet on the lookout for a resurrected Thomas. <laughs> not to mention having your portrait painted. Come on. He went back to the house to hang around, waiting for openings, for visions, mysterious impressions, anything that he could pull in. He spent most of the next four days doing this. It was up to him, he knew, to create the build-up to the final revelations at Rosie's birthday picnic. He had the whole lot of them on the hop in the end. He found that the minute he entered a room, anyone who was in there would find some excuse to leave it almost immediately. <laughs> he began to see that being a prophet and a phenomenon was a sad and lonely life. Even Mrs. Fosdyke became uneasy when he was alone with her in the kitchen. Her nerves were already under strain with the preparations for the party fair. 
She took great pride in catering for special occasions, and elaborately decorated everything she made. She was more than usually anxious about this particular occasion, because Rosie, knowing that one of her presents was to be a camera, had told her that she intended to photograph all the food. "'If it comes out well,' she told Mrs. Fosdyke, "'I shall get it enlarged and hang it on the wall at the side of my birthday self-portrait.' The thought of having her trifle and stuffed eggs immortalized on film had Mrs. Fosdyke in agonies of excitement and trepidation. Trepidation? Like nervousness. Mind you, she told her cronies in the fiddler's arms, where she had taken to going most evenings of late, partly because she felt the need and partly because there had been so much news to tell. Mind you, it does give you an incentive. Every now and then I'll be in the middle of stuffing an egg or trimming up a pork pie, and I'll think to myself, even when it's all been eaten up, it'll still be here. It'll be here forever. And a fair shiver runs up me. It's having your cake and eating it, see? <coughs> there was no doubt, then, that the food for this particular birthday was going to be the best ever. Certainly from the visual point of view. Mrs. Fosdyke was paying great attention to doilies and the color of the paper napkins. The picnic would not be a picnic in the strictest sense of the word, because the meal would be laid at trestle tables, and the guests would sit on chairs rather than rugs. It was Mrs. Fosdyke who had pressed for this arrangement. She gave as her reason that the elder Mr. and Mrs. Bagthorpe would be uncomfortable seated on the ground, and if it were damp, might even damage their health. The real reason was that she wanted her culinary masterpieces photographed against the background of a lace tablecloth, <laughs> not plaid traveling rugs with holes in them. <laughs> The day before the picnic, Jack nearly put a monkey wrench in the works by having another vision of the giant bubble and great brown bear, and rounding it off with the faintly uttered words, "'Tomorrow, the eleventh, tomorrow.'" <clears throat> Nobody much liked the sound of this. Vague and indeterminate allusions to such phenomena were one thing, but when a date was set for their appearance, it threw a very different light on things. "'You realize,' said Tess, in a wobbly voice, "'that there's a wood on the other side of that meadow, don't you? "'And you realize, don't you, that bears generally live in woods?' "'Rosie had then squealed, and said she had changed her mind "'and wanted the party in the dining-room, even if it was all charred up. "'William said that if a great brown bear was out to get the Bagthorpes, "'it would get them anyway, if he knew anything about prophecies. "'The whole point of a prophecy,' he said, "'was that it was inevitable.' If they went to the ends of the earth for Rosie's party, if they went to China for it, then, if that great brown bear was destined to get them, get them it would. Mrs. Bagthorpe told him to go up to his room after he had made this speech. She practically never sent her children to their rooms. She did not, by and large, believe in it. On the other hand, she herself felt that she could not stand much more talk of this sort, and Rosie certainly could not. Jack felt really sorry for her because it was, after all, her birthday, and she was only going to be nine. He felt so sorry he went down into the village and bought her an extra present on top of the one he had already got for her. <clears throat> Mrs. Bagthorpe tried to comfort her and told her that William was only teasing. Grandma then chipped in and said she hoped not, because if any anything was going to emerge from that wood tomorrow afternoon, then that thing would be Thomas, in all his old golden glory. I am as certain of it she said, as I have ever been certain of anything. <laughs> she took Jack on one side later in the day and asked him if he could possibly arrange to have another vision, and this time try to see things a little more distinctly. 
I can't just bring them on, he told her, which was true. They just happen, which was not. Although he enjoyed the attention he was getting, Jack was beginning to get a little tired of having to evade awkward questions and even tell fibs. He was probably looking forward to the next day more than any other single member of the Bagthorpe family. If Uncle Parker's forecast was correct, his position would be once and for all established. And yours, Zero, he told him as he prepared for bed that night. Your name will live forever. The prospect apparently left Zero unmoved, because he flopped down by the pile of comics and put his nose between his front paws. Jack took out the plan of campaign and updated it. He put in details of all the visions and manifestations of the past few days, which took quite a long time. He ended up by writing, <clears throat> Tomorrow my time will come. Even father will lay his neck beneath my heel. He underlined this, concealed the notebook among the comics again, and went to bed.